0: Welcome to episode two of the Joy in Medicine podcast series. I'm Elizabeth Tracy.
1: And I'm Charlie Cummings.
0: We're continuing our look this month at the Society of Bedside Medicine, an international group of clinician educators who aim to train young physicians in the joys of the physical exam and hopefully alleviate at least some of the burnout many in medicine report.
1: Burnout is a multi-pronged phenomenon, very common in arenas that extract high degree of energy and input from the person it's not exclusive to medicine burnouts burnout but I think being aware that it occurs and trying to alleviate when possible and eliminate where possible the cause is appropriate but stress leading to burnout is something that has to be dealt with in any high pressure arena.
0: Brian Garibaldi co-president of the Society and a Lung Expert at Johns Hopkins explains how robust physical exam skills help. You're aware, and so am I, that physicians are leaving the profession in droves and there's this shadow of burnout that's over the healthcare world. Really, not only physicians, nurses and all kinds of care providers. How can the acquisition and the perfecting of skills such as you've described help people to avoid burnout?
2: I think it can work in a number of different ways. So I I think probably for me, one of the most important ways in which it helps me avoid burnout is that joy of discovery. That's what we all went into this profession for, was to help uncover and discover why someone's not well and to help them navigate how to get back to wellness if possible. And I think intentionally honing your physical exam and your history skills and your communication skills and using them with people at the bedside is one of the most wonderful ways of getting that reinforcement and, you know, getting the satisfaction from your job that you trained for. There's a joy of discovery when you're with someone and you're listening to their problems and you begin to have a sense, oh, I think I have an idea of what this might be and I know what we need to do together to figure this out. And then you get the opportunity to examine them and things begin to come a a little bit more clear. And you're like, aha, I I think I know what it is. I think I know how we can help you.
0: Stephen Russell is an attending physician at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and a member of the Society of Bedside Medicine Board. He says those physical exam skills come in handy when it comes to providing a patient with a timely diagnosis.
3: Headache is a very common complaint, and I can clearly remember a man in his 70s who came in with a headache that was different from the type of pain that he'd had before. When the time was taken to actually do the physical exam first, rather than reflexively go to the CT scan, we had an opportunity to realize that this particular patient had shingles. It was actually in his scalp, which was hard to see. But by doing the physical exam, and by walking through that with a resident who was there with me, we had a chance to see that the pain that he was having was the same type of pain that he may have had if it was in another part of his body. And so by simply pausing, looking, listening to him, and then using our exam to be directed based on what he was telling us, we were able to actually make a diagnosis before we even moved to the next test that we thought might be needed. And in reality, we didn't actually have to do that test. We could move straight to treatment
0: Russell believes that the Society of Bedside Medicine brings joy by calling out physicians to be their best selves.
3: One thing I think that is often overlooked with the physical exam is that the physical exam is part of the craft of being an experienced clinician. What people need to understand is that part of being a well-rounded, well-taught, well-thought-out physician is understanding all of the tools at your disposal. And by not fully understanding and appreciating and practicing the physical exam, you're not fully reaching to the highest level of your craft, of your chosen profession. And so by using the physical exam, understanding the physical exam, and learning about the nuances of the physical exam, you're actually practicing at the highest level of your chosen profession.
0: Orsini, a second-year medicine resident at Johns Hopkins, recalls an enduring lesson in physical diagnosis.
4: I've really gotten in the habit of always looking at patients' hands because you can really glean a lot of information just from looking at their nail beds. And if there's pallor, you can find evidence of rheumatologic disease. And I recall my intern year, I had a patient with joint pain, and it was not readily clear what it was from. And my chief resident walked in and could see right away that he had tophaceous gout all over his hands. And I remember feeling kind of silly that I hadn't noticed. So now I just make it a habit whenever I'm examining someone, just, hey, let me, let me take a look at your hands.
0: Erica intends to work in global health and says physical exam skills are especially important in such settings and can also reduce healthcare costs.
4: I often imagine myself working in kind of like a low-resource environment, and I want to absorb as much of the information I can from these master clinicians, because I always think in the back of my mind, what if I didn't have a CT scan readily available, or labs, or those things were difficult to get, what would I do? I think it should be rolled out really in every training program across the country. We're definitely trying to reduce the cost of healthcare. care. We spend more on healthcare care here in the United States than anywhere else, and we don't have the best outcomes.
0: Willard Appelfeld, another second-year medicine resident at Hopkins, says bedside medicine helps him practice presence.
5: That's the really interesting part about all this, is that you feel sometimes when you're at the bedside that you know there are all these conflicting priorities which are driving you away. The things that need to be done, the pages that need to be returned, the notes that need to be written, the orders that need to be placed. But when you really go back and think about it in your memory, what lives on is not that feeling of, oh my goodness, I have so much else to do. What lives on in memory is the conversations you had or the encounter you had. And you don't remember how hurried you were or how stressed you were. You remember the person sitting there. And I think fundamentally that's why everyone gets into medicine, or at least most people, is to form that sort of human connection. And when you think about it, we sort of put up with everything else so that we can have that moment with somebody else at the bedside.
0: Willard says this lens has also helped him in dealing with end of life.
5: I try to keep a tally of the people I don't want to forget I was on a service which is dedicated to GI illnesses, I took care of an immensely sweet lady by the name of Miss B, and she had a, form, a rare form of liver disease. She would lived with it her whole life. She never drank, never smoked, had a otherwise pretty healthy teetotaling sort of life. Her only problem was that she had this form of liver disease, which eventually would require her to get a liver transplant. She had come into the hospital in June, and I remember that the ethos at June was we just have to get her out of the hospital. We just have to not break her. She's gonna get a liver. She's gonna get a liver soon, and she's going to continue to have this great life, and eventually she'll have a transplant and live another dozens of years on top of this. And then I was the senior resident in the MICU, uh, which is the Medical Intensive Care Unit, about a month or so later, and I met her again in the ED, in the emergency department. She'd been coming back from her doctor's appointment and had banged her leg on the door of her car and had a developing and, and quite frankly, nasty looking skin and soft tissue infection, a cellulitis. I was told that she didn't quite need the medical intensive care unit's level of care, but they wanted me to take a look at her regardless. I was concerned enough that I felt that she did actually need the MICU, and so I brought her to my service. Again, not a serious condition. People get cellulitis all the time. Unfortunately, hers um, proved to be much worse, and over subsequent days, her organ systems began to fail, first her lungs. Then her blood vessels, and she required IV medications to maintain her blood pressure. Then her liver began to get worse. um, Then her kidneys stopped working. Eventually, she needed a breathing tube. And as her liver failed and her kidneys failed and her lungs failed, she became more and more delirious. I got to know the family quite well during this time. And we were initially quite hopeful. After all, a period of critical illness makes you higher on the transplant list and makes you more eligible for a transplant. And then we became more and more dismal in our prognosis, recognizing that she most likely would not recover from her current illness. And as she got worse and worse, I struggled with feelings of helplessness, questioning, you know, could we have done anything different? And again, objectively reviewing the data and saying, no, there really was nothing else we could have done. And at the end of the day, what we could offer her was a comfortable death surrounded by those who loved her. And when I think of the treatments I rendered throughout my medical training, it was that one, which I think was one of the most meaningful ones, being able to give somebody and their loved ones a somewhat peaceful death. And in the end, I remember her daughter and her husband hugging me and thinking to myself, she died. Why are you, why are you hugging me? And uh, I realized that at that moment, What was more important than treating her infection or making sure her blood pressure stayed up or making sure her liver numbers were in range was the fact that she was comfortable and surrounded by her family when she died.
0: In his abundance of clinical expertise, Charlie sums it all up this way.
1: I think medicine isn't all pills and drugs and injections and procedures. Sometimes those don't work. Sometimes what's needed is an emotional support that is beyond a prescription. I think that you can't change the course of disease sometimes, and you can't alleviate an end result sometimes, but you can certainly provide support and introduce to the patient a reinforcing sense of self, a value of their life.
0: That's this month's Joy in Medicine. I'm Elizabeth Tracy.
1: This podcast series is brought to you in part through the generosity of the John Conley Foundation, which focuses on medicine and humanism.